0: Hello and welcome to She Dynasty. I'm Valerie Moiselle and these are the women who rule. Hello everyone and welcome back to She Dynasty. Today I am super excited to welcome Sarah Jones Simmer, the CEO of Found. Found is a modern weight care platform that's pioneering integrated support through personalized coaching, online community, and more. Prior to Found, she was an executive at Bumble, the woman first social networking app for four years, and she led the investment strategy for the Bumble Fund. Also, if you don't already, please like and subscribe and follow our podcast. We are on every major platform. You can also find us on Instagram at she underscore dynasty. Hello, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us on She Dynasty today. Thank you for having me, Val. Of course. Um, we are so inspired by your story. Can't wait to share it with our audience. You know, the journey you've been on, your accomplishments, some of the things that you've had to overcome personally, just again, very, very inspiring. And can't wait to kind of dig in and so others can be as inspired as I am.
1: Oh, gosh, that's kind of you to say. And I just feel grateful to have a platform like yours to share it a little bit and and if my story can touch or inspire someone that's so humbling to hear
0: fantastic so before we get started on you know kind of your personal journey and kind of how you got to where you are today i want to talk a little bit about found um super innovative company very interested to learn more obviously Uh, weight loss is something that is on many people's minds, especially with what we've all been through with this pandemic. And I know it's affected a lot of people um, in ways that they never thought it would. Um, I know for me personally, I always thought, well, gosh, if I get to work from home, I feel like I could be healthier and I could work out more and I could really watch what I eat. But for some reason, I, I know for so many other people as well, it's almost had an opposite effect. And so I'd love to kind of dig in with you on kind of why that's happening and obviously learn more about found. But first of all, tell us a little bit about the company and um, what it's all about. Yeah.
1: First of all, you are not alone. The average American has gained 30 pounds during the pandemic. And if you think about it, it's for all the reasons that we know, contribute to weight gain. It's stress, it's lack of sleep, being more sedentary. And I think the key point there is that weight is multifactorial. And if you listen to the legacy messages that we've been told, especially women, frankly, everyone talks about diet and exercise, but it's so much more complicated than that. It is stress and sleep and the amount of water you're consuming. It's also your hormones and your genetics and your lived experience, the images you saw from your mother or your childhood, the types of food that you had access to, the way that you were taught to think about food. And that's really what found is striving to do is to think about weight through a much more multifactorial lens. And that's a scientific way of saying that we recognize that it's a lot more than diet and exercise. And what we noticed was missing from the landscape was any emphasis on biology. You know, the doctor didn't have a seat at the table. And the reality is, for someone who is struggling with weight, you need to approach this in a multitude of ways, including addressing the implications of biology. I like to say that asking someone who struggles with obesity to lose weight through diet and exercise is like asking someone who's struggling with depression to meditate. That's not how you're going to get to your desired outcome. You have to address the underlying biological and chemical implications. And so found as a platform for modern weight care, we -hmm. bring together the best of precision medicine with the best of behavior change. These two things working together are what's going to drive you to healthier outcomes. And so you do get access to a physician who can prescribe medication if indicated. And then importantly, you get access to a one-to-one health coach who's going to help drive that sticky behavior change. But as the name itself implies, what we're actually trying to help you achieve is so much more than a number on the scale. This is about what you find not what you lose. And we have members that are finding the confidence to go out with their friends or keep up with the kids on the playground or get back on a plane and do the hobbies that they so love. And beyond even those health outcomes and things like preventing heart disease or high blood pressure, this is about finding joy in your body and being able to go out and live in the world in a way of confidence and in a way of embracing who you are that for many people is really connected To their weight, because their bodies are holding them back from living out their best lives. And I think that narrative is important as well, because so much of the legacy weight loss industrial complex is built on shame. It's about making you feel bad about yourself or feel less than and feel like, gosh, I would just be happier and more joyful if I could lose 10 pounds if I could fit into this bathing suit.
0: We don't believe in
1: that we actually believe you are enough right now we start from a place of self-acceptance we are threading the needle and embracing the idea of body positivity but we're here to give you a toolkit that can help you get to those healthier outcomes for you
0: right you said a few things that i just want to touch on first of all i love this idea that it's not about what you lose but it's about what you find because i think oftentimes know the emphasis is in the wrong place right and so kind of finding peace with um, yourself and your life and your weight and all those things that come with it and all the joy that comes with it i think is so important so i love that found has kind of shifted the narrative on that i think that's a very very refreshing kind of way to approach it secondly um wow people on average have gained 30 pounds during the pandemic is that a real thing Yeah, I think more than half of Americans have had
1: unwanted weight gain during the pandemic. So this is something that affects all of us in some way, shape or form. And frankly, even people who don't have a pandemic weight gain journey have had some experience with their weight and of that shaping their impression of themselves or a family member or someone that they love. And that's why I think this is a really universal issue. We We take a lot of inspiration actually in what we've seen happen in mental health in the past two years, right? I think the pandemic finally forced national conversation around burnout and mental health at work and mental health at home, because we are all living under stress and anxiety in a really different way. And the way that you shape stigma is through shared experience. The more people understand the problem that you're trying to solve or the problem that people are facing the more I think you take down barriers to access. And so the pandemic forced this conversation around mental health because so many of us were dealing with it. It also meant that there was incredible advancements in access to care. Suddenly you could get access to an amazing therapist in the palm of your hand. You didn't have to make an appointment and drive down the street or wait on the list for three months you could download one of these apps and meet with someone in the next 24 hours. And so I think we're seeing incredible technological advancement paired with changes towards attitudes and stigma that are enabling many more people to get access to care. Weight is the same dynamic. People feel so much stigma. They are made to feel lazy. They're made to feel shame. In many cases, we hear from folks that are even made to feel shame by their GP, their general practitioner doctor, right? The doctor says, just try a little harder or come back when you've lost 20 pounds, and then we can address X, Y, Z dynamic. And you, you can't fully blame them in some cases because obesity medicine as a practice has only really come to the fore in recent years. And now there is board certification around it, but there's only 9,000 practicing obesity doctors in this country. And when you think about the sheer volume of Americans, that ratio is skewed, right? So we're here to support those GPs as well and be a resource for them. This isn't about us saying you need to lose 10 pounds, or you need to look like this Instagram bikini model. This is about you
0: articulating what you want to find on that journey, and us giving you the tools to get there. Awesome. So you you also talked about, you know, stress, just kind of intuitively, you feel like so many people have shifted their lives to being at home and probably having more time in their day because they don't have to commute and they have you know their healthy food from their refrigerator and they don't have to be forced to go to lunches or go out you know in places around their offices how come that's how come that hasn't played a factor the other way is is stress that big of a a factor that it just pushes it the opposite direction I mean, I think
1: I would push back on some of the the things that you even said, which is like for a lot of people, we don't have more time on our hands. Suddenly we are running a preschool out of our living room because our kids are at home or maybe we got time back from our commute, but we're now working during that time or we're on endless Zoom calls and we're sitting very, very still. Um, Some of us are lucky enough to have the ability to get movement and exercise at home, But other people don't have safe neighborhoods that they can walk in. They may not feel comfortable walking after dark. Millions of Americans live in food deserts and don't have access to healthy foods in their refrigerator. In fact, their workplace may have given them more predictable, healthy meals. So I think the reality is the pandemic was disruptive for everyone. And with disruption comes things like stress and weight gain. And while there might be some upsides in some areas, there are definitely a ton of downsides that we're all still learning to navigate and your weight is a measure of your health. And all of these things are affecting our health. And therefore it's no surprise that they're also showing up on the scale.
0: Got it. And so obviously by you keep talking about biology and and how important that is, and, you know, I'm looking at your website and I see that there's lots of different factors that come into this. So there's neurobiology metabolism and thermogenesis. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Medication, hormones, genetics. We bring biology into the equation. So there are five FDA
1: approved medications to treat weight in the long-term fashion. Most of those deal with one of three things, either improving satiety, so making you feel more full, mm-hmm. curbing cravings, so some of that is improving signaling between your brain and your stomach. Mm-hmm. Decades of overconsumption of sugar can do things like break down the signal, and you you won't feel as full, or you won't be able to resist cravings. So, improve satiety, curb cravings, and improve metabolism. In some cases, your body starts to work against you and prevent you from losing weight. It's interesting, actually the body begins to fight back at about 10% weight loss. That's why we hear from a lot of people that they can lose like 15 to 20 pounds. And then it comes back on this comes and I'm not a doctor. So our chief medical officer would articulate this much better than I could. But this comes from our hunter gatherer phase where your body, in order to protect you, would slow your metabolism down if it wasn't sure where its next meal was coming from. And this is why sometimes folks find that a certain amount of behavior change can get them to a new lower weight, but their body's going to force them back to that set point. So some of these medications and biological interventions can actually reset some of that and help you break through those metabolic plateaus. There are other things that influence your weight as well. Hormones is a big one, especially for women. And this is not something that I often talk about, but given who your audience is, part of the reason that I got excited about the found opportunity and decided to take on this job has to do with my own health journey. So I have been on a journey with cancer since May of 2020. As a result of that, I'm actually in menopause in my late thirties, right? I can't have estrogen production. And for many women, the journey into menopause dramatically reshapes their relationship with their body. Sometimes it's weight gain, sometimes it's weight loss, but there's a shift, right? And I had been the type of woman that, you know, I've been a vegan forever. I'd done a bunch of marathons. I even did an Ironman once, but I could never lose the baby weight to save my life. And I really struggled with that. And the self-image it gave me, I now look back at like photos of my kids on the beach. Right. And I'm absent from the photo because I was afraid to be photographed in a bikini. And I know that's an experience that a lot of women I've heard from share and what was really striking for me is as a result of this journey of now being in menopause, I've really started strength training differently because I don't want osteoporosis, right? So I'm lifting super heavy things. And I have better attitudes now around things like sleep and stress management, in part because I've been on a cancer journey, right? And it teaches you a lot about like, what's a big deal versus a little deal. But I probably feel the healthiest and most confident in my body that I ever had. Right. And like, I'm coming off of cancer. I've had all these surgeries and whatnot. Some of it is absolutely a mental shift and getting to a place of like comfort and confidence and realizing that life is so incredibly precious that like, damn it, I'm going to be in those beach pictures regardless of how I feel like I look in my bikini, but I have been able to build muscle faster probably because I don't have estrogen coursing through my body in the same way. And it's really changed the way that I have felt about the biological factors, right? I worked hard before I did those marathons, I ate well, et cetera, and my biology was getting in my way. And that was a really big mental unlock for me and part of why I was so excited to be on this found journey because I've lived it. I've experienced the reality that it's biology alongside things like willpower and diet and exercise. And I wanted people to find the freedom in accepting themselves, knowing that it's not because they're not working hard enough. It's not because they're lazy. A lot of it is their biology standing in their way. And how can we think about building a platform that takes some of those biological considerations into account and actually creates a much more uh, multifactorial approach to helping them reach their goals?
0: Amazing. First of all, I love your passion about this. So thank you. I know there's probably some people listening that are, you know, maybe not so sure just the word medication, you know, that, you know, that doesn't seem like a natural approach. Can you address that a little bit?
1: Yeah. I mean, gosh, now I take so many medications related to my cancer journey. I sometimes forget that it feels foreign to folks and by the way, I also am like a super crunchy spent 10 years in California. Like I think we should be able to solve most things with organic food. But at the same time, I recognize that I'm only here alive today because I did chemotherapy and I'm on an aromastase inhibitor and, and other things. So I think the reality is that modern medicine is a marvel. And I am just so grateful for the advantages the developments in biotechnology, et cetera, like there is incredible innovation that's happening there. And in most of these cases, this is medication that is just helping your body do something that it, it stopped being able to do as well as it possibly could, right? It's like jump starting your own ecosystem. And, and that's coming back to a point I made before. This is not about 1980s diet pills and like pop two and sit on the couch and watch the fat melt away. That's not how the science works. It actually really is about using precision medicine in the lowest possible dose that's effective for you to help facilitate behavior change. And these things go hand in hand. So it might help curb those cravings so that you can make more mindful eating decisions. It may help jumpstart meta- your metabolism so that movement feels easier and more natural for you, but it's about these things coming together. And it's about educating you on other biological things like sleep, like stress, because cortisol is really hard on your body. And so it's the biological components, not just being addressed through medication, but also through this education and awareness piece. I understand the apprehension around medication in some spheres, But I think this is one of those things where, again, coming back to that example of like major depression and meditation, sometimes a biological or chemical intervention is what your body
0: needs to help it get on the right track. Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, thanks for explaining that. So I want to now jump into a little bit of your kind of career journey. So we're going to jump to the beginning of kind of your life. So tell us about uh, where you were born and raised and a little bit about your childhood.
1: Sure. I uh, was born and raised in northern New Jersey, just north of Manhattan. Um, like a like a good Jersey girl, I call that the city, and that's the only city. I'm the oldest of four kids, three girls, and a boy. My dad did not graduate from college. He started his career as a janitor in the pharmaceutical industry, actually, mm-hmm. and um, worked his way up to being a VP of science and technology at that company. So, so much of the way that I think about work and the value of work and how work is like our ability to make impact on the world comes from watching him and the, the messages that he imparted to us as we were kids. He unfortunately was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease uh, and passed away about six years ago now, but his legacy continues to have a really, really big influence on me. as does my mom, who I continue to be close to. She We had the privilege of having her stay home with
0: us when we were growing Uh, and she now lives in eastern Pennsylvania. Wow. First of all, sorry to hear that. You said your dad started as a janitor and then worked his way up. Um, I love those kinds of stories. So inspirational. So you obviously had some really great role, role models in your life. So very, very powerful, of course. So when you were a child, what did you want to be when you grew up?
1: Oh, gosh, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I ended up majoring in music. I was a flute performance major. And so I think probably for a while, I wanted to be an orchestral musician, but throughout my career and even my childhood, I was always led by my curiosity. And there were a ton of things that felt really interesting. I remember thinking about going into medicine at one point, and then I got excited about law and coming out of graduate school was recruited by the CIA and thought about becoming an international operative. But, you know, my my partner is an architect and has wanted to be an architect in seventh grade and like never strayed off that path. And I think here I am
0: 38. I'm still figuring out what I want to be when I grow up. So you had kind of two interesting paths before you moved to L.A. So you did attend music school and you also worked with the America Corps. Tell us about those two experiences and how they shaped who you are today.
1: Mm. I mean, I think music is an amazing way to build discipline, build creativity. I mean, you're practicing five to seven hours a day. It actually does take a lot of discipline, but you're building things like stage presence and collaboration with people. I'm so grateful for that. I studied abroad my junior year in Prague, right as it was acceding to the EU. And that was a really important turning point for me. I think I recognized all of these incredible geopolitical influences at play and felt like as much as i loved playing the flute and loved sitting in an orchestra the world was just so big and i didn't want to be tied down to that forever and so i did graduate with a bachelor of music and flute performance which does not qualify you for much beyond playing in an orchestra and so i ended up joining americorps right out of school which is effectively the domestic version of the peace corps And I served for two years in Chicago, working with low-income families on financial literacy. That's things like tax preparation, access to financial aid for college, opening their first bank account. Learned so much about the world of money and how much opportunity is tied to financial access and even financial understanding. My dad's mom lost her husband And knew nothing about managing the family finances at that point. And, you know, my dad, my dad did grow up in poverty and I think he saw the influence that financial access could mean. And I remember being in like the third grade and him opening up the wall street journal and pointing to different stock prices. Right. And he was still learning and figuring this stuff out for himself, but his daughters were going to be literate and they were going to understand it and and I appreciated that and I got to see it on the front lines when I was in in Chicago. Part of the way the program is designed is that you live at the poverty line too as you're serving people that live in poverty. Oh, wow. And it was really foundational for me and I've never forgotten that experience and I think it's it's one that I encourage more people to have. And I have understood from day 1 the importance of money and financial access and financial literacy, right? In a way that I now feel really grateful for. And I think not enough women have conversations around, and I'm not trying to make an overly broader gendered statement, but even now talking to friends about things like salary and compensation and how to ask for what you want and advocate for yourself. Like I can see roots of that in that time that I spent in AmeriCorps in Chicago, and I'm grateful for it.
0: That sounds like it was a very, very powerful time in your life that you carried through. So I love to hear that. So tell us after um, AmeriCorps, what was next? So this is a pretty
1: big shift, but I went from AmeriCorps to a hedge fund. I also got a graduate degree when I was in Chicago in public policy. I joined a hedge fund based in Los Angeles. So when you work Wall Street from Los Angeles, that means like in the office every day, 5.30 in the morning, you're kind of working like a, a skewed timetable. Gosh, I really learned a ton. I joined there in 2007, right before subprime locked up and the whole financial ecosystem started to crack, as you know. So I came on board to do a lot of work around Washington analysis because of my degree in public policy, thinking about what's going on in DC, what implications that might have for certain uh, sectors of the economy or even individual stocks. And then Frankly, the whole financial ecosystem was in upheaval and we all became generalists. We were all really focused on everything that was happening in the broader economy. And the fund performed really well. And the thing that I love about investing is... You get to touch so many things. You're seeing businesses at different scales, different stages of their life, different investment strategies. You get to develop pattern recognition around what does a good management team look like? What's a good supply chain? How much of your revenue should be reinvested in marketing and customer acquisition? You're just building a real analytical toolkit. And so I think it was a great place for me to, to start to build that kind of muscle around what it might take to run a company someday. I don't know that sitting in those shoes, I would have said, gosh, I want to be a CEO of a venture-backed business at some point. But I do feel like I just became enchanted by business and the idea of like companies and what makes them grow and scale and what makes some good and what makes some fail. And a lot of that, of course, is looking at management teams and leadership and how they understand what they're building for and how they, make asset allocation decisions accordingly
0: so there was never a moment in your career up until this point where you said to yourself i want to be a ceo of a company one day
1: i don't think so i don't know i wasn't like a seventh grader in the same way that my husband was who knew i wanted to be a ceo i think i followed a lot of curiosity. I followed leaders that I wanted to work for. I mean, the reason I joined that hedge fund was because of my boss and wanting to learn from her and really feeling like that was going to be a growth opportunity. But I think I was lucky enough to be able to chase down different things at different points in my career and, and always
0: be learning. And, and I still am. Oh my goodness. I'm learning every day right now. So after the hedge fund, you had one more job in LA. Tell us about that. I did.
1: I moved to a boutique strategy consulting firm focused on social good, philanthropy, sustainability, impact. I would argue 10 years before its time. It's been really exciting to watch things like ESG and the uh, larger emergent focus on that across all parts of the economy. But this was a company called Global Philanthropy Group. Historically, it had worked with high net worth individuals and celebrities on their strategies around social good. So thinking about not just their financial resources, but their platform, right? They have a soapbox. They have people who look to them. How can they really start to affect change? And when I came on board, I was charged with building out our corporate practice And this was during the time that like Tom's Shoes was coming on the scene and you were starting to see the millennial consumer really throw their weight around in the market and demand more from the businesses that they purchased from. Mm -hmm. So it was an incredibly exciting opportunity. And I loved consulting because you have so many different projects, so many different clients. I spent about four years working with Gucci on their work around girls and women we produced this concert in London that Beyonce headlined. And then at the same time, we were investing in sub-Saharan Africa in projects supporting girls' education or malaria and maternal health. I will say the one thing about consulting is you invest so much blood, sweat, and tears in like handing off this strategy, and then you give it to someone else to execute. And what I started to feel at that point was like, ah, oh, I want to be the operator. Like I want to run the play. I want financial equity in this situation as well. And I want to be the one that gets to bring this to life. And so after about four years there, I made the decision that I wanted to go in-house
0: somewhere and really build from the inside. It's interesting. So that was like a big spark for you handing over those strategies and the the idea that somebody else had to implement them was kind of made you a little crazy because it almost feels just like half the equation. There's a whole another half, right? Implementing it is obviously as important as creating the strategy.
1: Oh my gosh. I now know that for sure. And I think what's interesting is both an investor and a consultant, it's really easy to say like, you should do this, you know, like you should invest blah, 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 to add X basis points to your EBITDA margin. It is so much harder to actually do it, to mobilize the people, to change the asset allocation strategy. It's much easier to change those EBITDA margins on a spreadsheet versus like bringing that to life through human capital.
0: I never thought about that. It's, you know, there are very different kind of roles coming up with strategy and implementing the strategy. Yeah. And I think the best leaders can do both. Right. And that's also why
1: entrepreneurs are so amazing is because they don't necessarily have the resources to say, like, okay, great, I'm handing this off and now you run. Here's your swim lane. Um, And I have always loved the type of environment where you can flex, where there maybe isn't super clearly defined roles, where you have the opportunity to build a really cool and energizing portfolio of projects. But I think figuring out what lights your fire and where you're going to find joy and grow and what sparks you in your professional career is so important.
0: Absolutely. So from there, you moved to Austin and you took a job at Bumble. We all know Bumble. Tell us about that.
1: Yes, the Bumble job came along and it was a dream opportunity. And I think in so many ways, it weaves together everything that had happened for me up until that point. It was the impact, like the work that I had done in my consulting days, it obviously drew on the financial acumen and the kind of business building that I had seen as an investor Mm -hmm. and the early operating work that I had done at that other startup. And so I came on as chief of staff. I moved into a COO role about three months later. There was a clear energy and passion. There was product market fit. This was a beloved business, even then that women were flocking to Right. No one had built something in the dating space that spoke to women that made them feel safe, that made them feel confident. Yes, it was a crowded space. At the time, there was Tinder, Plenty of Fish, okay, Cupid, eHarmonyMatch.com. And a lot of people thought that Whitney was crazy for launching one more dating app. And it was my job to come in and build the infrastructure and scaffolding for scale, but to do it in such a way that didn't crush the magic. You know, a couple of things that really stand out for me. Uh, Launching Bumble in India was a, a real career high for me. I had met Priyanka Chopra and her manager because Priyanka was a big part of launching Bumble Biz with us um, in New York in the fall of 2017. And even then she had been beating the drum to Whitney around like, you've, you've got to find a way to bring this to India, like the women in India are stepping into empowerment. This is a really exciting time. We're seeing changing attitudes towards marriage and things like arranged marriages shifting, especially in larger cities. And she wanted to be a real champion for bringing something like Fumble there. And, and she and Whitney patched this plan. And this was one of those moments where I got to be the one to help bring that to life. And it was amazing to think about things like cultural localization, right? The The complexity of bringing something like Bumble to India is not about translating the app to Hindi. It's about how do you make women in India feel confident choosing this product, right? Like we're not empowering women. They're empowering themselves, but we're giving them this tool that they can use in their dating life and in their friendship connecting life and in their
0: business connecting life. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, the significance of arranged marriage and, you know, what what it's been through the years. I know a lot about it just because my parents were an arranged marriage after two weeks of knowing each other, not speaking the same language. Um, so my parents were immigrants and kind of came from a culture where that was, you know, very acceptable. So that's it's kind of a big deal that, you know, Bumble would go into a culture. And to your point, it's not just translating an app. It's yes. kind of changing cultural behaviors and making something acceptable that may not have been earlier before. I mean, that's kind of a big deal. It's a huge, huge accomplishment for Bumble. thank you and i think that any of the best technology products are not the
1: type that come into a market and try to tell the user base how to behave right it's really about listening to your users, understanding what they want, what's important to them. In Bumble's case, we heard from women on the ground, they wanted safety and security. We decided to help shield more of their identity and their profiles, which was different than how it might have operated in Western markets. We added religion. We added horoscope. These were things that women in India were really interested in understanding about their potential matches And so it's really about a posture of listening and learning, and then trying to build things, whether those are digital things or physical things, but build things that people want and that are going to serve them and then watch how those users use it. Understood. So how long were you at Bumble? Almost four years. So about three years in Bumble was acquired by Blackstone. And right around that time is when I was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer. And I... I've told this story before, and I'll just continue to sing it from the heavens. I feel so grateful that I had a boss like Whitney in that moment that I could go to and be very open about what I was facing and know that she was going to come alongside me and support me in that journey. And for me, working was important, but I also feel really blessed that I had the opportunity that when I felt like I couldn't work or I needed to take a leave of absence, that I had the grace to do that as well. But I initially really wanted to work. I wanted to work through chemo, but I knew I needed a narrower and more focused scope. I love the people and the professional development part of work normally, but in that moment, I felt like I just didn't have the emotional bandwidth for it. And I needed to reserve whatever emotional bandwidth I had for, for my kids, for myself, for my immediate family. But I also knew that I needed the distraction of something to help make my day is not about feeling like a patient. And I didn't, I know myself well enough. Like I would have just been Googling and reading white papers about like my chances of recurrence or my chances of living through this. And actually I wanted to continue to work. And it was really special for me that I got to work on something as significant as the
0: IPO during that time period. Obviously you're you're very driven, you're also a mom and you obviously got some devastating news. Tell us about that moment where you heard for the first time that you had breast cancer how that how how that impacted you in the moment Gosh.
1: um i mean, I think an important thing to note is that it was during the pandemic so this was may of 2020 so one of the craziest things is everyone's wearing masks and no one can touch you or hug you or embrace you and i i could see even how challenged the radiologist who was the one who gave me the news felt in the moment you know she, she like wants to reach out and hug you and comfort you And it's such a startling experience Um, and to, to not, I mean, I couldn't even have anyone come with me, right? Because of where we were with pandemic restrictions at that point. So I remember getting in the car on the way home and for context, usually when you go and you you have a mammogram in the moment, they, um, they won't tell you unless they're certain they'll like, send it to your doctor to tell you, but I was one of those cases where it like lit up like a Christmas tree. And there was like, this is a hundred percent absolutely cancer. We need to get you in for a biopsy ASAP. And I had no family history. I had no reason to believe that's what it was. Even when my OBGYN sent me for the scan, she was like, it's probably nothing, but let's just be safe. And I, first of all, I'm so grateful that she did that. I've heard from many, many friends who are like, you have no risk factors, you know, like this doesn't seem like a good use of time or energy. Don't worry about it. So I'm really glad that her spidey sense was up and that we went ahead and did it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what I remember more is like sitting in the car in shock. And I had had to go to a radiology center that was like 30 minutes away from my house in order to get an appointment. And just not feeling like I could drive home right away as I was sitting and processing this news. And it reminded me a little bit of, of when my dad passed and like how disorienting it is when you feel like your world has stopped, like the record scratch stopped and you like look out your windshields and for everyone else, it's like an ordinary Thursday. And it just, it's this out of body feeling almost where I think it calls a lot into perspective and now I can be so unbelievably grateful for that perspective. But in the moment it feels very lonely and it feels like no one on this planet could possibly be feeling what you're feeling in that moment. And I've come to find so much community and so much solidarity and others who have been on this journey, but it was very scary in that moment.
0: And so did, did this diagnosis ultimately lead you to leaving that job?
1: I suppose there were roots in that. I think what was, what was wonderful is that so many women face that diagnosis and don't have the kind of job to lean on or boss to lean on like I did. And so got through the IPO and also very shortly after that was declared cancer-free after a kind of like bumpy road. It, it, It is like the most amazing thing to hear is the words everyone wants, no evidence of disease, which for me was March of 2021. And I think in that moment, I had the realization that as a result of this cancer journey, I have just such a deep awareness of how precious and wild this one life is that we have. And I wanted the chance to make a bet on myself. I wanted the chance to build again. I wanted to take all of these amazing learnings that I had from Bumble and, and integrate them and and go do it again. And I love work. I really deeply believe there's a quote from Khalil Gibran that I often come back to where he says work is love made visible or work is love made manifest, depending on the translation. And I I believe deeply in that. I believe that like work can be our outpouring of love for humanity. And I, I just wanted the chance to go build something with meaning again. And, and I think I wouldn't have come to that conclusion had it not been for like Bumble success and for feeling supported by women like Whitney and having been on that cancer journey. Right but i i wanted to write another chapter and i hoped that it could be worthy of the of being the follow on chapter to something like pumble
0: you know it's it's obviously difficult to relate to if you've never gone through it it's just you only can imagine what it would be like if you were ever told the words that you had you know cancer breast cancer any sort of cancer just hearing you and how selfless you are that it was so important for you to keep going and working and giving back and making an impact and making a change Is just so incredible to hear, and I know so many people listening are going to feel the same way. Um, Just, just wow, just absolutely wow. So, thank you for sharing that very, very personal story. Thank you. I think if there was
1: one message that I'd want to convey, it's funny. I didn't for the longest time. I didn't. I'm not a huge social media person, but I didn't like update Instagram or or say anything about my diagnosis. The people I was close to that I worked with that saw me on Zoom every day knew what I was going through, but I distinctly remember one day going to the chemo bay and it was one of my last sessions, maybe second to last, uh, of the really heavy taxol cocktail, which is the one that makes you lose your hair and all that. And, um, there was a young woman who was next to me and it was her first time mm-hmm. and she had so many questions and she felt so alone. And usually I'm like looking out on the chemo bay and, and most people are in their sixties and seventies. And I, I felt, little disoriented as someone in my thirties. And this was a woman younger than me. And I could see that even in telling her my story, and I was just a little bit ahead of her, but like just far enough ahead of her that I could be a bit of her light at the end of the tunnel. Right. And we talked for hours and that was the day that I finally realized there are other women just like her that are feeling terrified in the same way that I was. And maybe hearing from someone who is just a little bit ahead of you might bring you some comfort in that moment. And I think I had always stepped away from sharing my story in part because I didn't want it to seem self-promotional. I get a little bit nervous doing things like this, like podcasts, talking to the press, et cetera. But I took a lot of comfort in knowing that it comforted someone. And I felt like, well, maybe I have to use this in some way that can help others understand that they're not alone, that a diagnosis isn't the end of their career. It doesn't have to change everything for them. And I think I might have thought that going in that I would suddenly have to like upset the fruit basket and change it all. And if anything, it's given me the clarity to know what is important to me and what brings me joy, what I feel like my purpose is. I hate that it took cancer to do that. And I would never wish that on anyone, but I do feel like I have this ability to recognize what matters to me and prioritize it for myself in a different way. Now I give myself permission to prioritize it in a different way. And that is a gift.
0: Amazing. So you mentioned that you were apprehensive about joining a health tech company because you had spent so much time focusing on your own health. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what made you feel that way and how you overcame that?
1: You know, shortly after I left Bumble, I actually spent a month, like, just doing all of the early pandemic stuff that I had never gotten to do before I like started baking my own kombucha. I was making banana bread. I adopted another dog. I did a bunch of landscaping. And then when I was ready to start looking again, and I was pretty open to marketplace, social media, e-commerce. But the one thing I said I didn't want to do was with digital health or health tech because of the experience that I'd had with cancer. It all just felt too new and too fresh. But the more time that I spent looking at companies and thinking about the next chapter and coming off of something like Bumble, which just had such a high bar for mission and impact. Mm -hmm. The only thing that started to rise to that same level was health. And then you start to look at health and you realize that all of the investment has been in the downstream effects, the diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, cancer, which of course I'm grateful for. But so many of these things have their roots in things like weight and obesity. And I really felt like there was an opportunity to shift both the care delivery model and the narrative upstream. And I got excited when I started digging into that space. And when I started meeting the leadership at found and getting connected to the team that had built it up until this point. And I felt like so many things actually reminded me quite a lot of dating. When you think about even shifting the stigma and the narrative, right? Like 10 years ago, people really didn't want to admit that they met online. And now 40% of Americans meet their partner on a mobile app. And I feel like the weight conversation is similarly due for a reimagination. And I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of shifting that narrative because I want people to feel more confidence in their own bodies where they are right now. But I also want to be part of serving up a toolkit that helps people get to the outcomes that would be healthier for them as they define it. Right. Again, coming back to our earlier conversation about what is it that you've found, not what you've
0: lost or not just what you've lost, but what have you found as a result of that? I love the parallels that you've kind of made between the dating app, your personal healthcare journey and, and found, it's just really interesting to see kind of the intersection of how all those things have kind of found meaning for you. So super interesting. Did you seek out the job at found or did they look, find you? I think they initially found me, but the more I got to know
1: the team and the space and the opportunity, you know, I was probably seeking them just as hard coming back. I think that when I decided I was going to write a next chapter, there were four things that were really important to me in the way that I thought about the role. I wanted to own a and again. I really wanted to like fully have an understanding of the business and the levers and be able to pull on those. It needed to be mission driven. Mm-hmm. Three is I had to love the people that I was going to work with. You spend more time with your colleagues than you spend with your partner. So you better really enjoy them and believe that you can build something special together And then four, I had to believe in the core economics of the business, right? It had to be addressing a media enough TAM. And so Found really did check all those boxes for me.
0: And I think this is actually a really good kind of moment for people to stop and recognize that you, you know, you kind of move through different um, industries, right? And how your um, experience kind of built on each one to get you to where you are. Before, A lot of people feel like it has to be such a linear journey, right? You have to get promoted from this job to this job, to this job, to that job. And though you've done that, the experience has been in very, very different industries that have some some loose connections to how they they work. And I think that's really, really interesting and a great learning for people listening today.
1: Thank you for saying that. I think, as I shared before, the red thread for me is mission and impact and feeling like I always wanted to be somewhere where I was driving better outcomes for people other than myself. Right. But the reality is so much about your ability to invest yourself in your work comes from you finding joy in it. And for me, finding joy has been about following my curiosity and learning new sectors and drawing on the parallels where it made sense and recognizing some of those patterns, but continuing to learn as I go. And I am like the poster child for a non-linear career path. I mean, I started as a flute performance major, but I feel really privileged and honored to be at the place that I am. And so much of that is because of of following passion and not, you know, I think sometimes shutting out the voices that are like, you should be on this straight and narrow path and do this job for X number of years and get promoted to X, Y, Z. Followed what I loved. And at least up until
0: now that, that has always served me well. And I feel very grateful for it. Awesome. Well, Sarah, you have answered all of my questions. What I have left is there are rapid fire questions where I'll just ask and you just answer in one sentence if possible. Tell us first, what does success mean to you? Success for me is knowing love. What keeps you up at night? My four year old,
1: uh, actually she just turned five who I never properly sleep trained and still comes into my
0: bed. If you could completely switch careers, what would you do?
1: If I could completely switch careers, I might go back and live out that CIA analyst dream. You know, I I spent a minute interviewing for that job. I've always wondered what would have happened if I had chosen that and not chosen my now husband. I love that.
0: Um, in your mind, what is the biggest challenge facing women today?
1: Society's expectations of us and the ceilings that still exist as a result.
0: What's your biggest strength?
1: My resilience.
0: Biggest weakness? Insecurity. If you could have one skill set that you don't have now, what do you wish you could be really good at?
1: Speaking another language.
0: What is the actionable advice you would give for someone listening that wants to kind of get to where you are today? Stay curious and give
1: yourself grace. I think The, as I said before, the pressures we put on ourselves, the pressure society puts on us, there's a lot of noise. And following what you love and what brings you joy and being able to shut out some of those voices is so
0: crucial. Perfect. All right. Well, Sarah, I think you've answered all of our questions. I'm so grateful to have you on She Dynasty and excited for people to listen to this interview. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was such
1: a joy chatting with you. Absolutely.